0: Alright, so we are continuing through this series on the Mighty Prophets, and there are 12 of them, and we've got two left. So the second to the last one this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at Malachi. So this morning is Zechariah, so you can turn there um, while I share a few kind of introductory thoughts. And not only are these books oftentimes difficult because of historical and cultural distance from where we live they can be difficult to understand but this one this morning is probably one of if not the most difficult of the 12 minor prophets but like we found in other weeks we neglect these books at our own expense we lose out So there's so much rich grace and truth found in these books, and I hope that this series convinces you that there are diamonds in there that are worth mining. So um, as you read the Bible, as you read through the New Testament, for instance, it becomes really clear how important this book is in what comes after. So in the passion narratives, Jesus' road to the cross, his suffering um, and death, chapters 9 to 14 in Zechariah are the most quoted section from the prophets. So that's reason enough right there to make sure that we're familiar, that we really understand um, this book because of its significance for understanding the work of Christ, and we'll see that this morning. The book of Zechariah also has a significant role to play as backdrop, backdrop, or background for the book of Revelation. So, like I said, this is probably the most complex, the most difficult of, of the minor prophets to understand. It's also the longest. Um, so, I will do my best for us not to be here till three. Um, but really, all along, the purpose of this series would be was to be not only to um, kind of feed a fish on. A given Sunday morning, but also to teach to fish, to give a little bit of a bird's eye view, kind of helicopter overview, to give you some tools and orientations so that you can dive in it, dive into it um, more on your own, and benefit from these books. So I hope that's the case with Zechariah. In fact, frankly, I was so kind of excited and encouraged, uh, even just this morning. I think I'm going to spend probably the next month or so in Zechariah because I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, and I hope that this is clear enough, um, but I know I have so much more to learn in this book because it it's a deep well. Um, so one little just, I don't know, maybe this is helpful. Sometimes the cultural historical distance is really off-putting when you go to read a book of the Old Testament probably in particular, and books like these, the Minor Prophets, it can be confusing and you know weird and it just seems impossible and we just kind of throw up our hands and just move on to the Gospels because it's more understandable, it's easier to understand, or one of Paul's letters or whatever. Maybe this little silly illustration can help with why this is important. So, you know how with movies, there's oftentimes a lot of cultural references embedded So I'll take a dumb example. Toy Story, okay? This Pixar film, okay? I think there's like four of them now, but I'm just talking about the original one, and I looked this up. It's not like I'm a Toy Story aficionado or anything like that, but hidden in Toy Story 1, apparently, are like many, many cultural references to Picasso, You know, Mr. Potato's head is like all rearranged and it looks like a Picasso painting. Um, So if you don't know Picasso, you you kind of lose that joke, right? This is background that's important for you to appreciate what's going on. Or there's a Back to the Future reference, you know, Marty McFly, the DeLorean, all of that. There's an homage to Darth Vader in Star Wars. There's a poster that parodies the Uncle Sam I Want You. There's a Raiders of the Lost Ark Boulder scene throwback. Okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you don't. And that's okay. Um, You'll still understand the point. There's a Death Star reference, again, Star Wars. There's a Wizard of Oz reference, you know, there's no place like home, Dorothy. There's a Lion King reference. So, why do I bring all that up? Imagine an international friend comes over and you watch this movie for the first time, or they watch the movie for the first time, you're probably going to stop maybe afterwards, maybe you hit pause, and you're going to say, well, this, 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 and look at this little YouTube video, and oh, now I understand. I mean, that's what you need to do when it comes to understanding the Bible. Now, you can watch Toy Story 1 and not know any of those references and still kind of enjoy the story, but it's really vital to understand some of this background if we're going to benefit from these books. So we've got to take the time to study them and understand them. So the plan this morning, because this is 14 chapters long, we're not going to read the whole thing. It would take like the rest of our time. It takes about a half hour to read 14 chapters. Um, so the plan is to do a little bit of an overview under point number one, and then we're going to kind of drop down into a few key places Um, And actually, the outline is kind of long. I'm going to skip a couple. Um, I'll just summarize them super quick, and hopefully that just encourages you to go figure out what's going on in those places that we can only skate over. All right? So first point, we're just going to get our bearings, looking at chapter 1. So if you're not there already, turn to Zechariah chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1. So in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius— The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barakai, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So the Lord had been angry with previous generations. And this was not hair, trigger, temper. This is just sustained rebellion and idolatry and injustice they were just sticking their fingers in their ears god would send prophets and they they didn't want to hear it they would persecute them they'd kill them in some cases so idolatry and injustice violence had saturated the land So, God had to judge his people, and he used Babylon, the southern kingdom at least, used Babylon to do it, destroying Jerusalem in 586 BC. And those people were carried off to exile. Some of them were killed. Some of them were left behind. But most of them, you know, carried off in exile to Babylon for 70 years. So, we see in 1 verse 1, chapter 1 verse 1, that the beginning of Zechariah's ministry is dated to the second year of King Darius, king of Persia. And we know that that refers to 520 B.C. Okay, so the Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. The Persian ruler at the time was Cyrus the Great. And in 538, the very next year, he proclaimed an edict that allowed the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And you can read about that in the book of Ezra. We talked about some of this last week because Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries preaching at the same time, okay? So the temple work got started, but Cyrus died in 530 B.C., and the restoration kind of came to a halt. There was another king in between, and then Darius I ascended to the throne in 522, and the conditions again became favorable for the rebuilding of the temple. So look at Ezra 6, verses 13 to 14. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Okay? So like I said, contemporary prophets. So the temple was completed in four years from 520 to 516 BC, but... The issue was not that, you know, because Haggai last week had to preach so that they would get, get going and keep going to build this temple. The issue is not that they were these returned exiles that were just lazy, and, you know, Zechariah and Haggai had to kind of light a fire under them, like foremen getting their idle workers going. That wasn't really the issue. The issue was that they needed to repent and return to the Lord. They needed to not be like their fathers, That's the deeper, bigger issue. So look at verse 4. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So in other words, Zechariah is preaching saying, so how did it go for your fathers? Your fathers who stuck their, ear, their, their fingers in their ears to the word of God. How did that go for them? Not well. They were judged. God's word overtook them. You can't outrun God's word and intention and will. And they paid for their evil, their just stubborn rebellion. So Zechariah is appealing to them, will you not learn from this and repent? And, again, we noticed this last week, they did. They responded. Look at the rest of verse six. So they repented. This is actually the same word as return back in verse three. Return to me. So repentance is to turn around and come back, leaving that Trajectory behind, not walking away from, but toward the Lord, back to Him. So, the book of Zechariah is about the kingdom of God, about the return of the king, the kingdom of God coming to earth. The return to Jerusalem, these exiles coming back, was not merely about building walls around the city and building up the temple. It's about welcoming the rule and reign of God. So Barry Webb, an Old Testament commentator, writes this. He says, So Jerusalem was nothing without the temple, and the temple was nothing without God's presence. It was God's presence that made both the temple and the city glorious. With the Lord present in his temple, Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the center of his kingdom on earth and the place where that kingship would finally be manifested. So the return after exile was about the return of Yahweh to dwell with his people. He had departed from them and judged his people because of their stubborn rebellion and their idolatry. So if he was to return to dwell with his people, they needed to repent and welcome his rule. Their hearts needed to be in the right place. So if you want God's kingdom to come, You need to be ready to receive it. And to repent is to be ready for, to welcome the arrival of God. That's why John the Baptist, did you think of John the Baptist when I started to say those things? That's why John the Baptist's ministry, what did he proclaim? He proclaimed a baptism of repentance. He was the forerunner. He was readying people for the Lord to show up. So he was the voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Those who were aware of their sin, their need for forgiveness and cleansing, were baptized by him. The Pharisees, they rejected his ministry because they thought they had no need of repentance. They were blind to their hypocrisy and their need. So the king is coming, and Zechariah and Haggai were getting the people ready to receive the king. Two more matters of introduction. One, a word about genre, which is kind of a fancy word that just refers to literary form, okay? Like, poetry is different from prose. A proverb is different from historical account. Well, Zechariah is not the kind of writing we're used to reading. Some call it, like, futuristic prophecy. Um, In places, it has characteristics of apocalyptic, okay? Which is, like, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic and the latter part of Daniel is like that as well. And if you have any idea of how this genre works, it can be pretty confusing, pretty disorienting to read. So um, after the intro of 1, 1 to 6 that we just looked at, from 1, 7 to 6, 8 chapter 1, verse 7 to 6, chapter 6 verse 8, you find eight visions in there. And they are weird. Even bizarre. Okay? They can kind of leave us scratching our heads, like, what in the world is going on here? Which, actually, if you think about it, they can be kind of like our dreams. I mean, does everything make sense in your dreams? Sometimes it's, like, wild, and it just moves from, like, how in the world? What's the meaning, you know? So the images in Apocalyptic can shift quickly and drastically and can be kind of hard to picture, like... So I think maybe for the sake of time, I won't give illustration from Revelation, but um, the point is not that we try to reconcile all the different images into one. It's that it's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to get your attention. And each of those image has images has meaning. So for instance, and I will quickly give one, Revelation 5, Jesus is both a lion and a lamb. So are you t- supposed to try to like have this picture, like, how did that all work? Well, there's truth revealed by the fact that he is the Lion of Judah, his power and kingship. But there's also truth, mighty truth, that's revealed in the fact that he's a lamb that looks as if it's been slain. So the, the images can kind of flash boom, 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 and it can, it can be disorienting. The other thing that happens with apocalyptic is it's kind of like pulling back the veil to see things from heaven's perspective, okay? So we, we have this worm's eye view. We see the world around us. And so, for instance, there have certainly been times, and, you know, if, if we were in danger of something, certainly maybe at different times in America's history, you can imagine how in the midst of economic prosperity the church can sometimes become blind to its materialism and worship of mammon, right? Money. And you can just feel like everything's great, this is God's blessing but imagine a prophet coming onto the scene and painting the picture of what's really going on, kind of pulling the curtain back and showing that the church getting in bed with Money and materialism Materialism is like This brazen seductive Prostitute who lures you in So it's this shocking image but it gets your Attention and you realize What's really going on So um, I have a quote here I'm trying to decide whether or not to read it. Let's read it. Okay, so this is by James K.A. Smith, so skip the first one, Chad, and um, and then we'll, yeah, okay. So he describes apocalyptic like this. Apocalyptic literature, the sort you find in the strange pages of Daniel in the book of Revelation, is a genre of scripture that tries to get us to see or see through the empires that constitute our environment in order to see them for what they really are. Unfortunately, we associate apocalyptic literature with end times literature as if its goal were a matter of prediction, which sometimes it is, but it's not only that. But this is a misunderstanding of the biblical genre. The point of apocalyptic literature is not prediction, but unmasking, unveiling the realities around us for what they really are. So apocalyptic literature is a genre that tries to get us to see the world on a slant and thus see through the spin. And then he gives an illustration of what he's talking about. I imagine it, is, it is, I imagine it as a bit like the vertical louvered blinds in my room. If the blinds are tilted to the left on a 45-degree angle, then from straight on, they'll appear to be closed and shutting out the light. But if I move slightly to the left and get parallel to the louvers, I'll find that I can see right through them to the outside world. Apocalyptic literature is like that. The empire, whether Babylon or Rome, has something to hide the world blinds us and so tilts the louvers just slightly to cover what it wants to hide. But apocalyptic is revealing precisely because it gives us this new perspective which lets us see through the blinders. Thus, Richard Bauckham observes that the book of Revelation was meant to provide a set of counter images to the official image purveyed by the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. Oh No. Jesus is Lord. Showing reality from God's eye view. So one example of this is found in chapter 1 of Zechariah. So look at verse 8 here. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him was Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest." Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered, and answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And you say, let's go back to Philippians. (laughs) Okay, do you see what I'm saying? Go back to Romans 8. <laughs> so you do a little bit of digging. That's what you got to do. And so what's actually going on here is the Lord is pulling back the curtain. So from their perspective, this is this day of small things, and yeah, we're back in Jerusalem, but like, look at this pathetic temple. I mean, like, does God even care? Is he really with us? Like, Everything looks really bad from their perspective, and still Persia's the world power. I mean, we're just pathetic, you know, this little tiny kingdom that's not reestablished at all. Like, what's going on? And Zechariah pulls back the curtain, and the cosmic patrol of the Lord of hosts is sent out into all the earth and all the earth remains at rest. Isn't that wrong? Like the earth is at rest, but Judah is still suffering. They were in exile. I mean, shouldn't it be the other way around where the people of God are at rest and the enemies of God are troubled? Well, cry out. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. It doesn't look like much right now, but wait for it. I'm at work. I'm on the move. I'm coming. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. You think they're prospering? Oh no, just wait for it. I'm going to exalt my people and I'm going to crush the enemies. So do you see what's happening? God is letting his people see behind the curtain. So, um, this book (laughs) is one that as you read it, it'll be really helpful to have an outline, okay? That's not always helpful. This one, it's really helpful. So, I don't know if we can pull this off here. Um, So, the Bible Project, I've recommended this through this series to watch the videos. This is what happens if you watch the video. I know you can't read any of that. That's okay. That's not the point. You can actually download this thing and print it off and stick it in your Bible. Because, again, we're not just giving a fish. We're teaching a fish in this series. So, this is the introduction. These are the eight visions and they help you see that these are actually mirrors like they're they're connected so it goes one two three four five six seven eight and then there's this interesting thing in the middle between the first half and the second half chapter seven and eight and then nine through eleven is a a section and twelve to fourteen is a section so I'm only putting that up there to say it helps you navigate as you're going through the trees to have this bird's eye view so an outline can be really helpful Um, If I tried to give you an outline verbally right now, one, you wouldn't be able to write fast enough. Two, you're not going to remember it anyway. So the point of this is not to like, oh, what was the fourth vision? You know, no, it's just, you can print that off on your own. But the point is, it is really helpful to see from the helicopter view so that you don't get lost amidst the trees as we go along. All right? All right. Let me just do one more outline thing, see if this will work. So this is like really high tech. I did this this morning. I know you can imagine I must have gotten early, up early to do this. Um, this is another thing that's really helpful to see. You do a little digging and you realize, is this even working? Um, those eight visions have a pattern to them. I, I mentioned before that they have a pattern. But look at this. This is so cool. God returns. And what happens when God returns? Sin departs. So keep that in mind as you read through these eight visions and see what's happening. There's connection between one and eight. There's connection between two and three and six and seven. And then at the center, there's these two figures, these two leaders, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And that pattern's really important. So anyway, enough with the outline, but the point is it's helpful so that as you study it, you don't lose the force for the trees but you have some help navigating through some difficult terrain. Now, we're just going to touch down in a few places this morning, and I hope that really it just whets your appetite to sit down and enjoy the rich feast that is in the book of Zechariah. First place we're going to touch down is chapter 3. So flip to chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, and this point is called the priest with dirty clothes. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> So then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing. So this is vision number four. This is at the bottom of that V that we looked at. Okay, so it's really important, kind of a central, the vision four and five are, are really central. And Satan, standing at his right hand, to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? What's a brand plucked from a fire? It's like this burning stick, and you pull it out, and it's still lit, but it'll die out. It's like rescuing it from the fire. So Joshua, the high priest, is like one Rescued from the fire, a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So Joshua is the high priest, and he's defiled and unclean. What does that mean? He's unfit for his office. How can you be a high priest and just be unclean and defiled? It's a big problem, and it's not just a big problem for him as the high priest, it's also a big problem for the people, because what was the high priest? He was the representative and the mediator by whom the defilement and uncleanness of the people was removed, most demonstrably on the Day of Atonement. So, Satan's case here, he's standing there to accuse, it's like a courtroom here. It seems like an open and shut case. I mean, Joshua is just disqualified, he's going to be condemned. In this courtroom, Satan is the opponent, the accuser. And that is Satan's MO, not just way back in the Old Testament somewhere, but also in our lives, like Revelation 12.10 says that he's the accuser of the brothers. He accuses them day and night before our God. So Joshua doesn't say anything in this courtroom. He's got no appeal. He's guilty. It's obvious. Look at his clothes. And yet, even though Satan's case is very strong, seemingly unassailable, the Lord just throws out the case before Satan can even make a case. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. The high priest would wear this turban. You can look back at Exodus 28 to see the clothes of the, of the priests. Um, put a clean turban on his head and clothe him, and they clothed him with garments. So, how is this not unjust? How is this not like pardon by fiat, you know, like a judge who just throws out a case for a friend? I mean, it seems like partiality, it seems like a miscarriage of justice. It's like almost arbitrary, like, like there's an end around due process. Like, how can he do this? I mean, unless there's another explanation, well, let's keep reading. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, verse 6, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends, most likely his fellow priests, he's the high priest, but then there's also priests, You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Symbolic of things to come. What things? Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, seven facets of a precious stone, I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, like this supercharged day of atonement. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, which is an image for just flourishing, human flourishing and security and and prosperity and peace and peace. So, notice, repentance alone can't deal with our defilement, our uncleanness. Joshua's dirty clothes represent his sin and that of the whole land. He's disqualified from serving in the temple. Only God can solve his problem. And again, remember, who is the high priest? He's the one who mediates between God and sinful people. So, he represents the people to God and intercedes for them and God's atonement, he then communicates back to the people. So he, in a very real sense, carries the people into the presence of God. Do you remember Aaron's vestments, like the garments that Aaron wore? He had these two onyx stones that were put into his shoulders, and they were engraved with the names of the six, six tri- tribes on this shoulder, six tribes on this shoulder. Go into the high Holy of Holies, and he's representing the people to God. They have atonement, mercy seat. Also on his breastplate, there were 12 stones. Each 12 tribes represented. He's representing the people of God. Exodus 28, 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So he went in before the Lord, offering sacrifice on behalf of the people, receiving atonement from God, and then Returning to the people to communicate that atonement to them. So if he is unclean and unfit, then that means the people are in trouble too. So zoom back out. The temple's being rebuilt, and that's a good thing. But they don't just need a structure for structure's sake. They need to build the temple so that God will return and dwell at the center of their lives so that his kingdom will come and he will once again dwell with his people. And the defilement of Joshua was not just this huge problem back then for them. It's a huge problem also that's relevant to us. Okay, we also, we're not high priests, but as far as standing before God Like we're unclean, unfit to dwell with God. He's holy, we're unholy. How in the world is God going to dwell with us? How in the world can the day of the Lord, when God shows up, when his kingdom comes, how can that be a good day and not a terrifying day? So the king will one day return and set this world to rights. We are all defiled, all dirty and guilty. We're not ready to stand before him. We we, we can't have him dwell among us without just consuming us. So what can be done to remove our iniquity? How can we be in his kingdom and not shut out from his kingdom when he comes? Well, the rest of the book in large part is given to answering those questions. So first, it's not going to happen by human power ingenuity. There's one verse that you may be familiar from familiar with from the book of Zechariah, it's 4 6, and it's talking about the building of the temple. How in the world is this going to happen? Well, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Where are you, O great mountain? all the obstacles that get in the way, whether they be political or whatever obstacles of this temple being built and these purposes being accomplished, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plane. God's just going to level all the obstacles and it'll be really clear that he did it. So we don't have time to unpack that, but... Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. That's how the temple of the living God gets built up and his kingdom comes. His um, kingdom spreads. So it's by God's spirit, and then also it will come by way of the work of the branch. Okay, this person in chapter 6. So let's skip ahead to chapter 6, verse 9, and dip down again and take a look at verses 9 to 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles, Heldai, Tob, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So wait, a crown on the priest, on the high priest? And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So temple building in the ancient Near East was a, a work of the king, right? Solomon built the temple. Cyrus built gave the decree for this temple to be built. And here this person, the branch, is going to build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne. So this is like the merging of the king and the priest into one person. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Well, there it's... Like two, but we'll see later that they merge together as one. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to these folks. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So, what is going on here? (laughs) Um... Again, let's back up. The Assyrians invaded, destroyed the northern kingdom, 722. The Babylonians invaded 586 and just turned, you know, the kingdom of Israel into a bunch of, of slaves in exile. So the massive tree of David and Solomon's kingdom was felled. It was cut down. But Isaiah prophesied that out of that stump, a shoot would grow, a branch that would bear fruit. And that's ultimately the king who is also the high priest. Okay? This righteous king who will create a righteous people and kingdom. So the branch is obviously the Lord Jesus. So we're going to skip over point number five. Um, it's worth just noticing. Read through those chapters and see how God turns fasting into feasting. Um, But you'll have to wrestle with how and why. So the branch, the messianic king, is coming. And we get to chapter 9. We get a surprise. What's this king like? Look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. And again, this is something where you realize, oh, wow, that's where that's found. That's where that comes from. So how will this king-priest, this priest-king come? What's he like? The king is coming. He's in, In verses 1 to 8, he's moving south. He's dealing with his enemies. And then he shows up in Jerusalem. And look at verse 8, chapter 9, verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. So he's protecting his people. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes, God is on the move. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to his house. The king... Is coming, whose coming is God Himself. And then the shocker comes in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. That's expected. But then this is unexpected. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he cuts off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So his weakness, him coming in weakness is actually more powerful than the power of the enemies of God. So here comes the branch and this branch, this king, is a humble king. And as a result of his coming, humbly, look at what he accomplishes. Flip ahead to chapter 13. Let's look at the first two verses. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So there's this fountain that's going to open up. I mean, it's pretty obvious like what this is pointing toward, right? It's the fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So the humble king comes and he dies so that his blood will be shed as a sacrifice of atonement so that our sins are dealt with. This fountain is open to cleanse his people from sin and uncleanness. And so finally, point number eight, the return of the king, chapter 14, verses 8 to 11. On that day, and this is pressing ahead to his final return, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name, one, the sole king over all the earth. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, and on and on. And verse 11, Jerusalem shall dwell in security. The people of God will be safe and secure. So, the Lord's going to go out and fight for his people against all the enemies, and he will win the victory and bring perfect peace. <clears throat> so, obviously, the king has come, right? Jesus came. Zechariah 9 is quoted in Matthew 21. He came humble, mounted on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem. And he died, and his veins were opened up to create this fountain to cleanse his people. So his kingdom has come, and it is coming, and no one can stop him. We just need to get ready and welcome his rule as his forgiven, cleansed citizens. Okay, so just to close with one point of application, and I know we've just kind of, blown through this book and a lot of it might feel like a a history lesson but let's just zero in on one point of application that brings a few of these themes together so brothers and sisters let's never forget that the case is closed You, you probably know the voice of the accuser remember Joshua and Satan is there to accuse him You probably know the voice of the accuser. He loves to wag his finger in our face. And you know what? We're guilty. We're unclean. So what can be done? Like the name Satan literally means the accuser, the opponent. So the devil is like a prosecuting attorney bent on your condemnation. But Jesus, on the basis of his high priestly sacrificial work, Is our defense attorney. He is not our prosecuting attorney. He is our defense attorney. So the gospel is an offer of complete cleansing, taking away those defiled, dirty clothes and being clothed with new clothes, new vestments. You are in Christ, united to Him. You are cleansed and new and righteous. So if you're not yet a Christian, you can trust in Jesus today. You probably know what it means to be guilty. Your conscience testifies to that. You know what it's like to be defiled and dirty because of what you've done. It's all of us. But Jesus can wash all of that clean, and you can be a citizen in his kingdom. Case closed. But for those of us who are Christians... It's really easy to kind of revert back. Like when we fail, we considered some of this this weekend at, at the men's retreat. When we fail, what's what's sometimes the narrative like in your head? Do you ever condemn yourself in your head? Does your kind of inner monologue, your inner voice, sound more like the accuser of the brothers than the advocate and mediator, the Lord Jesus? Jesus is not your prosecuting attorney, brother or sister. He's not aimed at your condemnation. He removed all of our sin in a single day when he said, it is finished. And he opened up the fountain for us to be cleansed. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So will King Jesus tell us the truth? And sometimes it hurts to correct us, to change us absolutely. The Spirit will convict us, but he does so because God loves us and wants to forgive and cleanse and set us free. So let's learn the lesson of the priest with dirty clothes and the purposes of our humble servant savior, who's also our high priest. We need to believe the gospel. We need to believe that the case is closed. The Spirit does want us to loathe our sin. Satan wants us to loathe ourselves, the accuser. The Spirit's will is to redeem and renew us, setting us free so that we can happily live under the kingship of Jesus. His will be done done in our lives. His kingdom come, and we want to be vessels to bring his kingdom. Satan's will is to enslave and destroy you, condemning you and holding you captive. The Spirit says, there's something wrong with you. I'm here to help. Satan says, what's wrong with you? You're beyond help. See? The courtroom case, the accuser, but the Lord throws the case out. It's closed. So don't ever forget who your defense attorney is. Don't forget that the case is already closed. Don't let Satan open it back up again. It is finished. The king has come humbly to take all of our filth on himself so that the fountain of cleansing can be opened and we can be made new as his people when we're saved and continually washed and renewed and conformed more to the image of our humble Savior. So he's dealt with all of our iniquity in a single day. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the branch, the king, is the high priest. The priest and the king have been fulfilled in one person, the Lord Jesus, and he is now building his temple, the church, and his kingdom is coming. And one day he will return and rinse this defiled world clean, and all things will be made new. The whole cosmos will become the holy temple of the Lord, and He will dwell with us, and we with Him forever, in security and joy and peace, fullness of joy forever, perfect shalom. So, we cleansed citizens of the kingdom of God Isn't it better to have one day in his courts than a thousand outside? Don't you want to dwell with him now and forever? So, Lord Jesus, even so, come. We can't wait for you to come and dwell with us and we with you forever. Let's pray. This book is a like a wild roller coaster. but we thank you that it is just filled with your sovereign and wild grace and mercy, Lavish, mercy and grace. To deal with our defilement, and to make us your own, to ensure that there is, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Help us to believe it and help us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, welcoming your rule over our lives. Your kingdom come. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will return and set everything to rights and the whole earth will be your holy temple and we will dwell with you forever. We thank you that this is the case. Help us believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.